Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. From KUS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Aaron Shurovich about the concept of debate and persuasion in today's polarized climate. The way that I, I can like escape that, that like downward spiral of nihilism where it's just like, well, everything's worthless. I'm going to do what I want. I, I remember when I work at a school or I work with a debate team and I see those kids whose light bulbs pop you know, they go off. And I just get to experience that. I get to be a part of that moment. That's the coolest thing in the world. Right? Like if you can show a kid a thing that they didn't understand before and you watch them get it, that's just awesome. It's at least an incremental improvement on the world. tells his story about how he got wrapped into the world of competitive debate, coached it for nearly a decade, and his views on how debate permeates our culture today. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Book clubs are fun for a lot of reasons. They're an excuse to read something new, something you might not have picked up on your own. They are a great opportunity to visit with friends. But what if you could invite the smartest, most insightful people you can think of to have a candid conversation about a great book? That's what I get to do on the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and you're invited. He really was able to convey the message in a way that gets to your heartstrings. We can really see that he is a scientist, but he's also a person who loves what he is studying. He's a scholar and a humanist, and and I think that's his greatest achievement. And then it's like punch, punch, oh my gosh, what? So you have this like visceral, emotional connection to the poem, and it's because of the way he's linguistically playing with language Let's talk about sex, because, of course, in the original book... Um, <laughs> Stan and I have always longed for someone to say that to both of us on the radio. <laughs> A dream come true. Yeah, All right. thank you. All right. The Talk of Iowa Book Club podcast, coming soon from Iowa Public Radio. It's time to start reading. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Aaron Shervich about the nature of debate in today's climate. Shervich taught and coached debate in Omaha for many years and quickly became one of the most successful debate coaches in the nation. He retired from debate last year, although he's slowly working his way back in. And on today's show, he reflects on the concept of debate and persuasion in a world full of echo chambers. Here is our conversation. All right, so I want to start with the fact that you grew up in Fremont. Oh, man. We're going to open that can of worms right out of the gate, huh? Well, I think it's helpful for the arc. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. So I don't you – know, it's funny because there's there's sort of like the stereotype uh, people who don't live in Nebraska have of Nebraska. But I think people who live in Omaha have a similar stereotype about people who live in Fremont. Oh, sure. Uh, sure. What was your experience with Fremont like? I mean, the, the, the thing that comes to mind for me when I think about it really, uh, there's one moment that kind of encapsulates growing up in Fremont, Nebraska to me. And that was when I was at Nationals as a senior. I had introduced myself to somebody, and I knew that none of them were going to know where Fremont was. They were going to assume California. So when I'd tell them where I was from, I said, hi, I'm from Nebraska. 
And I remember a kid saying, oh, yeah, what state's that in? <laughs> and that felt like everything about growing up in Nebraska. You always get the, oh, is your school in a cornfield? Yeah. Oh, did you drive tractors? It's yeah, like, do you guys have electricity? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we poop inside, <laughs> and we have electricity. There are cars, and we don't all own cows. So, you know, you get into that kind of image from the outside, but even from the inside, Fremont is the black sheep of all of the other black sheep being Nebraska. So it was it was an odd one, but in the era that I grew up, there were just more things happening in Fremont that were, you know, opportunities for outside thinking or outside thought that, you know, like speech and debate that were a lot bigger and a lot more prevalent than than they happen to be now. Well, just knowing you, you know, you're the general uh, type of culture you bring to a room doesn't strike me as especially Fremontish, Fremontesque. I've grown up a lot. Let me well, put it that way. <laughs> that's kind of, I think that's, that's kind of what I mean about the arc that's useful because there were things that probably you strike me as a, like you were probably a stubborn kid. Oh, absolutely. Undiagnosed uh, oppositional defiant disorder, 100%. There's no way around from? it. Uh, that's uh, if it if that's genetic, it's my dad. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, there's there's a whole episode we could do about that guy. But, um, you know, I, I just wanted to fight stuff just to fight stuff sometimes. You know, if I could go out and make an argument just to argue, I, I did it. It was entertaining to me. Well, but there's a difference between that kind of arguing and then debate, right? For sure. For sure. Although it's up, there may be some overlap there's a, it's, as it's, well. It's I mean. not two independent circles in this Venn diagram. <laughs> but, you know, if you if you look in that center – that was where I tried to occupy most of the time. But then there were other moments where, you know, I was firmly in one circle or the other. And, it you know, for better or for worse. So were you, I mean, was it something where your worldview at that time was sort of shaped on this is what my parents are and this is what I don't want to be because that's what they are and I'm a rebel? Or? No, oddly, oddly enough, I was very much in line with my dad's like kind of overtly right wing uh, perspective. My dad, you know, he, he retired at 39 from a 20 year career in the Air Force on 100% disability. So his existence after that retirement was not driven by a place to go or things to do. It was just driven by, well, I exist today, and that kind of opened the door for a lot of, I don't know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but like into into a lot of radicalization from like pretty far right-wing media. Mm -hmm. And that informed me a lot until about probably sophomore year. So my perspectives where I'm at now are pretty much 180 degrees different from where I was as a kid growing up in Fremont. Like I very vividly remember... I think it was about seventh grade, maybe. And I was at a Little League baseball game. And it was when the petition effort was being conducted to make the state constitutional amendment against gay marriage. And my friend that I was with had a gay uncle. And I remember trying to shame her for supporting gay marriage instead of the amendment to ban gay marriage. And I look back on that kind of moment, and it's just like, okay, all right, yeah, things have changed. Life is different. You know? well, but so, like, you were, you were growing up in, like, Rush Limbaugh-type culture, Absolutely. Right? 100%. And that's all, in that. all the time. I mean, all those mm-hmm. guys have four-hour-long shows. Yep. You can listen to it all day long. Yep. So it, it's not like there's a lot of diversity of thought necessarily no. when no. you're in a household where that stuff's playing. No, because as soon as Rush was off the air, it was right into Bill O'Reilly's show on Fox News. Right. So, you know, it was all of that. It was that, you know, every day. Ad infinitum. But so like infinitum. I, I had a similar experience, and so it's it's interesting because you you do sort of pick up on the fact that 
there is a charisma that these guys have. Oh, sure. And there's some reason why it's so prevalent and why people do listen and people tune into that in a way that they don't for, like, NPR, for yeah. example. Trolls are magnetic, man. Trolls are magnetic. Yeah. Well, and there's that energy. I mean, just the, it is high energy and it's mm-hmm. angry and you want to buy into anger and, like, okay, why is this guy angry? I guess I should be angry, too. And it, is, it can be infectious like that. So, I mean, for you, it was that way until what started to shake it? I mean, debate did the, did the job for me. You know, having to interact with people of a wide array of backgrounds. Because debate in some places is kind of insular. It's kind of – it ends up drawing a lot of the same people. It's a lot of white dudes in some places. But locally in the Nebraska circuit for a lot of years, you know, as much diversity as we could draw in Nebraska with as you know, kind of light on diversity as we are as a state, we were still drawing a pretty diverse collection of people. So we were having different perspectives. We were having different people from different you know, like demographic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, and just – growing to know people and growing to hear their perspectives and growing to respect them not just as you know like opponents mm-hmm. or as coaches or judges but as people that have experiences and that have everything else that I had just on a different you know angle uh that that really kind of changed the way that I was evaluating my own uh, opinions and perspectives and just listening to people who I I thought were smarter than me even if I wouldn't tell them that out loud <laughs> Well, I mean, so what drew you to debate in the first place? Uh, really, in middle school, I, I sat down in my counselor's office and I said, I want to do debate. And she's like, yeah, that'd probably be good for you. And then I did it because I just wanted to speak. I had no qualms with standing in front of a crowd with you know doing whatever I needed to do. Unless you wanted me to do it in character, then I wasn't so comfortable. So or if more I wanted than to dramatic. Sing. Yeah, yeah sort of that was okay. not my thing. But I liked the idea of performing in something that I was confident in, and there was really nothing that I was more confident in than being able to argue and just being able to put on that kind of show. Well, where, why was there no stage fright? How, what had you done to get over that? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't think I ever had it. That's the weird thing. Like, yeah. I have this overactive sense of shame in some contexts, and then it's just non-existent in others. Okay. Like, you know, I did stand-up a couple of times, like, just as open mic things. Not like I was some big touring comic or anything. I don't want to overclaim anything at all, but... Uh, you know, I didn't have any any qualms about that either. It was a little bit of butterflies, but whatever. And with debate stuff, you know, I've spoken in front of dozens upon dozens of people. Um, I didn't have quite the audiences that some of my kids have had, but I never had any problems. I never, never second-guessed myself, never doubted myself at all. And I don't know why other than just to say that that was nature for me. I don't know. It just was a thing that was automatic. Do you think you were drawn to like the way that your family would like listening to Rush Limbaugh or Bill O'Reilly to want to be somebody who would be listened to on topics the way that they are? Kind of. I mean, that was, that's definitely probably informing it to a certain extent. But I was always a bad student. Like, I just did not perform well in school. I was the kind of student where if a teacher gave me an assignment I didn't understand the point of, I'd throw it away in front of them. Uh, I'd just tell them explicitly in the classroom. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Bye. See you tomorrow. And then maybe not show up the next day. Who knew? But I was a bad student, but I knew I was smart. And I always had that comment from every teacher I ever had. (laughs) They're like, Aaron's distracted, but he's really smart. Aaron's underperforming his potential. Like, I think that that comment on all of my, like, young grade reports, just probably the the keys got worn off of those teachers' (laughs) keyboards. But, you know, I, I liked being able to demonstrate what I knew and what I was capable of without making 
you know, without having to like jump through an, an academic hoop. Right. And I saw debate as a way to perform intelligence without having to do things that I thought were busy work. Well, but debate does have its degree of busy work in the structure. I mean, right, to some extent, you, you still have to conform in various ways. Sure, sure. But I, I wasn't necessarily rebelling against that conformity. Like, if I understood the point of the conformity, I was I was 100% in. Okay. But if I didn't get it, if it was like, oh, I want you want me to do this crossword puzzle in my English class? Okay, no. You have to find vocab words yeah, or whatever. No, thank yeah. you. No, thank you. Finding <laughs> these things does not teach me these words. Yeah, right. So I just will opt out of that. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm getting a D? Okay. <laughs> well, okay, cool. so debate, though, I mean, how did you know as a kid then? I mean, was it just because you had a good coach who didn't, I mean, who could present it in the language you were willing to speak? To a large extent, I definitely connected to debate because of my head coach. Uh, my coach was Fred Robertson back at Fremont. Uh, he moved on to Millard West where I assisted with him for a while, and he's since retired, and he's now an assistant coach at Marion. Uh, but Fred was absolutely instrumental to my connection to the debate world. Um, Fred is the kind of person – so there's a fine line in my brain for people who will call me out correctly – and people who will call me out in a way that makes me hate them. And Fred was always on the right side of that line in my brain, even when he was aggressive about it. So Fred would, he would not use kid gloves to tell me I'm being dumb, but he would never underestimate me. Like that's the, I think that's kind of the difference. When I felt like somebody was like, good God, will you just stop? And I could feel that they'd given up. I was out. Yeah. But Fred never gave up. Do you remember some of those times when he called you out? Oh man, there are so many times that like somehow I'm I'm just drowning in a sea of them. <laughs> like I don't I don't have any one particular memory okay. that comes out, but you know, I've seen Fred call out other people and I've seen Fred, you know, I've felt it, I've seen it, I've experienced it for years because I mean, I worked with Fred for 4 years in high school and then for 8 years after high school while I was going through my college program and all that. So I've had a lot of pretty close experiences working with Fred that it just, for me, it was, you know better than that. Stop being a dummy. Yeah. Fix it. Well, it's, it's debates, in my experience, was something where there is a degree of genuine knowledge, but there is a degree of BS you sort oh, of just absolutely. get good at. And, 100%. And that's its own. There's sort of like two separate skills that you start to sure. figure out as sure. you go. Especially, for me, it was learning that judges don't always know much or anything. Yeah. But then to play the room was kind of a skill you get. Absolutely almost independent of whatever you're debating sometimes. Not, not, maybe not in the best ones or maybe not in the ideal ones, but it definitely happens. For sure, for sure. I mean, you, you're going to have kids that win rounds in ways that are dirty or weird, but you have people win football games in the same way. You have people win basketball games. Yeah. You know, you, you have a hard foul at the end that's somehow not called, and oh, it's legal. Right. Same thing happens with debate sometimes. You get kids who do weird, kind of shady stuff that, you know, it just... It doesn't necessarily in the world. Well, it's an, I think it's an interesting lesson in the context of in a lot of life. You can sort of BS your way through various things to various people. And, like, it's a good way when you're a kid to learn that the adults in the room aren't necessarily experts on anything. Oh, absolutely. I think the thing that sticks out to me when I think about that particular idea is I think it was, like, my junior year, maybe my senior year. We had a topic that was about flat tax, right? So the, the flat tax rate for everybody for income tax. And any high school kid knows – Literally nothing about taxation. Right. Like nothing at all about income taxes. So it was just a matter. I remember actively thinking, I just have to know enough that I can say what I say confidently in such a way that the other kid who I know doesn't know anything 
will get scared of calling me out. Yeah. And I did that well enough that I remember getting a comment from a judge who said, it's so refreshing to see a debater who is so well-researched on the topic. <laughs> and I was like, I've got like three articles on me right now. You just can't see through the inch-thick BS layer. Right. And that was, that felt good. That's one of the comments I very, very <laughs> vividly remember, not because it was like, oh, you're so smart, and I I deserved it, but it was like, oh, you're so smart, and I, 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 I joked. I not joked, but I, I tricked him. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Aaron Shervich about the nature of debate and persuasion in today's fractured world. I don't know. Do you, do you feel like there's a, there's a moral problem with that, though? Because Sometimes. I mean, I, it is its own skill. But also, I mean, the, the debate culture right now, I would argue, is not that concerned with reality for the most part. I think that the idea of, like, academic debate and the idea of, like, political discourse and all that are are somewhat closely aligned in a dangerous way. But when you have like the competitive debate environment, I think the thing that will always be good about it is the ability to explore and the ability to learn in an environment where there are immediate rewards and consequences for whether you're doing that work, right? If I've got somebody standing across the room from me who's arguing Foucault and I've never picked up Foucault's book to figure out what Foucault's saying, then I'm probably going to lose my my shorts in this one. Then I go and I learn Foucault, right? I'll pick up the book. I'll read it. If in a real environment, you know, you've got a political debate back in the last presidential election between Trump and Biden. If Biden started talking Foucault, Trump's not going to go pick up that book. It's not happening. So debate in the academic sense provides consequences where it's like, well, if you didn't do the work that you needed to do for this idea, or you couldn't just like creatively think your way through it and find the hole or find the way to make it not matter as much, then you've got, you know, you make your own assignments for prepping for the next time. You don't want to lose, right? And losing is a thing that is concrete. In our political debate culture, there is no such thing as losing. Everybody wins, everybody loses, but nobody admits they lose. There's not an objective ballot at the end that says, oh, you took the you took the L in this one. Well, and another big difference is the judging system's fairly different. Absolutely. You know, the, the, it the presidential is. debate. And the, it definitely you know, is. Competitive debate. Well, because there's, I mean, a lot of debate is predicated on this idea of potentially changing minds or that the, that rationality is, ma- then rationality matters, mm-hmm. that the syllogism you build matters, et cetera. And I guess, I, I don't know that I, I see a lot of that happening in the real world. For sure. I agree entirely. Like, you know, you can lose a debate for not being intellectually consistent. You know, if you're if you're arguing that, I don't know, capitalism is good or capitalism is bad, but then you have a different argument that says the opposite thing, that works against you in the competitive debate environment. It doesn't in politics. When Trump is talking about why capitalism is just this great thing, but then he automatically turns around and he's like, and we should do more things with health care. It's like, wait a minute, bud. There's no consistency between these positions. If this was a debate, like a debate debate, your opponent could turn around and just, you know, sharpen the short sword and stick it between the ribs. I mean, in a metaphorical sense, obviously, right. I've yeah. never seen anybody stabbed in a debate <laughs> round. Uh, but when when you've got the political debate, it, there's no there's nobody holding your feet to the fire on those kinds of consistencies. And that's not the case in an academic debate. But in my experience. So how much does that weigh on you, though, when you're coaching and you have a very successful team, but 
I mean, do you worry that you're preparing them for kind of this idealized world that doesn't actually exist outside I, of the debate room? I don't think so, because I think that they still get like that real world, air quotes, real world kind of experience in their class environment in the rest of their life. You know, I have kids in my classroom for you know four hours a week for practice and then probably like 16 hour weekends for, for tournaments for locals. And those 20 hours are not outweighing, you know, the rest of their week full of hours. It's just one snapshot of, of a, an experience where they can learn from that and they can see one alternative. And then if they can take those skills into the world more broadly and try to ensure that the world looks more like the positive aspects of debate, then it's good by me. That's that, what I'm shooting for. You would, you, would you say that that's therapeutic for you as you watch the real world not have a whole lot of principle in debate? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I'm the most proud of in my like 15 years of assistant coaching and head coaching at this stage is, I guess it's 16 years now, but I think the thing I'm the most proud of is seeing how many of my kids come back to help either my programs or other programs or you know wherever. They're judging, they're coaching. I've got kids coaching up in Minnesota. I've got kids coaching here in Omaha. I've got kids coaching in Lincoln. You know, my wife is is a phenomenal coach of her own right, uh, defending, I guess. I don't know if you defend it, but she's the national coach of the year from 2021. Um, she hates that I mentioned that. I told her I was going to do it. She was like, don't. And I'm like, I'm doing it anyway. Um, but, you know, I, I love seeing that kind of communal connection. And I think that's the thing that happens in a debate environment that isn't necessarily happening in the real world. And when we can get kids involved in an activity that shows them how to be combative when it's in an appropriate setting and then how to be communal when you're not, you know, taking up arms against somebody, it I think it's a good model for what they ought to do in day-to-day life. They might not do it perfectly. Nobody does anything perfectly, really. So it's just something to strive for. And I'm, I'm proud of, of you know, the outcomes for the kids that I've had over the years and what they've gone on to do. You know, some of the, some of the most powerful people I know are former debaters. And that it's not really, uh, it's not really a coincidence. Well, so a thing that I've had difficulty with in my experience with debate is that, I mean, it, it is competitive, so you're not really going to ever get to a point in a debate where you say, you know what, I'm persuaded, I believe you. <laughs> Absolutely. You win. You never you never concede the debate, even if you know you're just losing everything. Right. Yeah. Even as we've yeah. established, if you've made up everything, you mm-hmm. will never admit that. You're just going to yeah. hope that it works for yeah. you. Um, but, in, I mean, it, I, I guess to switch the, a little bit to just like the concept of debate, not just necessarily competitive debate, it does seem like in real life we should have people conceding that certain points make sure, sense or sure. admitting that they're wrong. Absolutely. And I, I, I see, like you already kind of mentioned, nobody ever really does that. Uh-huh. And I, don't, I don't know how to fix they don't, that. They exactly. don't do it in round anyway. Let me put it this way. They don't do it while they're actively competing. Right. I have seen a whole bunch of situations where once a judge discloses a decision, the kids are like, you you beat us. You beat us terribly. Yeah. Congrats. And yeah. then they just move on, right? Like they'll learn from those lumps that they take in those rounds and they'll they'll modify what they're doing in the future and they'll they'll tweak their performance or they'll tweak their argument or whatever it is. And they learn from those moments where they know that they didn't, you know, win the debate, but they can't if they're competing for the ballot, they can't say, Yeah, you beat us. It's it's over. I mean, right. why do we continue? We continue because we 
push ourselves through to just see if we can find that next little little bit of I don't know truth. Well, it's like we were saying before, like when you know you're BSing around, you know oh, you're absolutely. wrong. It doesn't yeah. really matter that much to you. But I guess I, I get a broader sense of our of our general way of communicating as humans. I feel like we we do that same thing a lot oh, of the sure. time, and especially people in power do. Sure, it. sure. And like culturally, we're we're so we're in such echo chambers now that it's sort of like I feel like sometimes con- I, I don't know if conversation and debate can accomplish much anymore. Like it's almost like somebody will say this. There's no table right here between yeah, us. Yeah, right absolutely. Now. And I'm just like I don't I don't really know how to argue. I don't know yeah. if I care to even try to argue because that's just nonsense to me. I I, I kind of tick people off sometimes because I refuse to engage in that kind of thing. Like. If I've got some idiot on a social media situation that's just like arguing in bad faith just to try to do a gotcha, I don't, I don't engage. I block and I move on, and I'm done. I don't, I don't care. I don't do it. Like, aren't you a debate coach? It's like I'm not debating you, right? But I mean, it sounds like to me that kind of mentality is more popularized than it was maybe 20 years ago. Oh, for sure. I mean, you've got you've got all sorts of people who are just there to be like argumentative trolls constantly. Right. And now, yeah. what do you what do you do with troll culture when that becomes mainstream? I, burn down the culture and start over. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. But like, I think that the debate is kind of a microcosm of that at times. But what you see when the rounds are done, when you know you've got opponents that respect each other, you've got teams that treat each other well, you see that that kind of thing isn't necessarily happening in the debate world, which I think is what folks kind of need to view and then you know identify with on some level uh the limitation that we have in our broader culture i think comes down to the fact that there's never post round right if you've got trolls they're on all the time every moment of their life is that debate so there's never okay the judge said i lost you were right that was a good argument and i didn't i didn't really answer it they're never going to make that admission because they're always always on and that's, I think, the biggest problem. If debate never stopped, it'd be a terrible community. Yeah. But because it stops and because, you know, we have great relationships. You know, I met my wife in the activity. You know, some of my best friends, people I'm closest to that aren't actually blood relatives but are basically family, they're debate people. You know, I've spent 20 years in the activity broadly. I know people all over the country. I know people all over the world because of the activity. My My exposure to, you know, a variety of beliefs and a variety of experiences is I'll tell you if I stayed in Fremont it wouldn't be that <laughs> so I look at debate as a, a not a perfect environment necessarily because there are definitely warts but I think that the way debate approaches disagreement the way that debate approaches just a like a culture of like exploring ideas I think is healthier mm-hmm uh, and also, this, the community has some pretty firm norms as far as kind of sh- like pushing away like totally out of bounds ideologies. You're not going to see yeah. somebody arguing for fascism in a debate round. Right. It's not going to happen. Because the culture is cultivated in that yeah, sense. Whereas absolutely. In, in, in the real life where trolls can talk about whatever they want, it's absolutely. not. But, I mean, you must be worried about the, our, our cultural communication, our oh, ability of sure. humans. Well, because like, I, I think about this when you just talk about, like, Aristotle's model of mm-hmm. any kind of persuasion, right? There's this, there's this idea that you can persuade through logic. You can persuade through reason. Yeah. You can persuade through the rhetorical appeals. And I don't know that I really in buy theory. that. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> this whole idea that humans are rational and respond yeah, to logic, no. I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense anymore. No, it doesn't. I mean, 
It, it just doesn't. You've got people who are taking horse medicine instead of a vaccine that's FDA approved. Like, no, we don't. We're not, we're not smart actors sometimes. You know? is, that, is that new? Is that changing? Or are we just able to see it because everybody now has a Twitter account? I think that's probably more accurate. You know, if we've got a better window to the the stupidity and (laughs) and also people are less shamed by their stupidity like people are more empowered nowadays to be like yeah i'm stupid what do you think so what who cares that's what i mean it's like they'll they'll like yeah there's no Mm -hmm. table between them and Mm -hmm. i'm proud of that yeah absolutely absolutely i see the truth yeah yeah up is down down is up what of it like no i'm not mm, bye you're out so, like, how do you avoid nihilism when it comes to like that? When, oh. Especially when you think then of okay, it probably was always this way. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's good or bad because part of me is like, oh, it's nice that it's not getting worse immediately. But if yeah. it's always been this bad, then why uh, why should I expect it to get any better? Ever? I I think I might be if, if if full disclosure, I think I'm the wrong person to ask how you avoid nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> that that might be more uh, more. More set for somebody who isn't like overtly nihilistic ninety nine percent of the time, but like for me, the way that I I can like escape that that like downward spiral of nihilism, where it's just like, well, everything's worthless. I'm gonna do what I want. I I remember that you know when I go and I work at a school or I work with a debate team, and I see those kids whose light bulbs pop. You know they go off, and I just get to experience that. I get to be a part of that moment. That's the coolest thing in the world. Right, like if you can show a kid a thing that they didn't understand before, and you watch them get it, that's just awesome. And and if nothing else, it's at least an incremental improvement on the world. So it's really a matter of evaluating and valuing those incremental improvements, those little things. It's like, well, I might not have fixed the world, but I made that kid's life a little better. Right? I I'm I'm very much about relationship building and community building when it comes to the activity and when it comes to my you know my teaching. So when I'm doing that, those moments where I see somebody reinvest in the community, that's that's what I'm there for, you know. And I think that when we can when we can build a a cultural value on a sense of community, then we're in a position where we're fixing things even if they're small. Fixing things, at least for certain people. Sure, sure. It's not it's not universal fix. You're right. <laughs> well, I mean, so you're somebody who does think about these bigger questions. Did you ever toy with uh, trying to like run for office or do some of these bigger, broader yeah, changes? I mean, I've I've kind of kicked that around a little bit. I, I think that the nihilism gets me more on that front than it does, you know, when I'm looking at small change because yeah. like it's. I, as a kid, I was somebody who, if I did not succeed at a new activity immediately, I was done with the activity. Right? Like it took me like 13 attempts to break the board in karate, and then I was done with karate. <laughs> I'd love that you ever did karate. Yeah. I'm just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> oh man, I'm just surprised I didn't hurt myself in the fray like a Pokemon. Like, oh, Aaron hurt himself in confusion. Uh, but you know, I I just when I when I was terrible at flag football, I stopped going to flag football. Yeah. My high school wrestling career consisted of one single day. When I woke up the next day, I literally couldn't move my body, and I <laughs> tapped out. So, you know, I, I'm not I'm not necessarily the most, like, emotionally resilient person when it comes to that particular kind of challenge. And honestly, I think if I ran for an office, while I might be successful, because I, I think, you know, I think I'm a fairly gregarious person. I think I make connections with people pretty well. 
and people like to confide in me a lot. But I, you know, my my buddy is Tim Royers, and I watched him run for that state ledge seat last term, and I watched the the abject garbage that was thrown at him from you know the opponent and from the the folks who supported the opponent. And Tim's one of the best people I know, like straight up, just one of the best guys in the world. If Tim tells you something's going on, it's going on. There's no there's no manipulation. There's no deceit. There's no misleading. There's nothing. It's all genuine. It's all 100%. And to watch that guy get drugged through the mud, it's just like, what are you doing? Like he had to get walked out of a board meeting because people were booing him because his daughter wanted to get a vaccine. Like, that's that's the kind of thing where, like, I watch that happen to somebody who's run for office, and I'm like, you're a good person, and that happened to you? Well, I've got way less of a fuse than that. If somebody started doing that to me, I mean, it's probably not going to end well. But, I mean, that that's kind of the goal of doing effective communication, though. Is sure. Like, how do you reach those people, and how do you hopefully impact them? Yeah, that's where we go way, back right? to the nihilism. Right, yeah, like, no, <laughs> that's what exactly where I'm going with it. Is how do you... Yeah, yeah I, don't, I, don't, so, I don't know that those people are reachable. <laughs> Did you always feel that way? Uh, more or less. But, I mean, you're one of those people who was reached, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's that. I definitely exist in a, in a weird, like, nebulous gray area on that front. Like, I am I'm a, I'm, I'm an illustration that you can, you can reach somebody who thinks one way and make them think something else. I would think that that, that then gives you kind of a, a, a spring against the Niles, a spring yeah. of hope against I mean, it. I think, I think timing is also important to when I had my kind of aha moment, you know, when I had that epiphany. I think that the timing is essential. If something like 4chan existed then, who knows? Who knows what rabbit hole I'm down? You know, if something like just like some of the crazier boards on Reddit existed, who knows? I really have no idea where I end up. Maybe all of that counteracts everything that I got that, that, you know, informed me to be a better person. So I think that radicalization on the internet is probably the greatest source of my nihilism. So I don't know. I just, for me, I try to reach individuals as much as I can. And if there are people who have greater hope than I do, that some of this stuff is solvable, that maybe through the, the skills that they can acquire in a debate environment or like a, just an academic environment, maybe then they can go and they can do that extra work that I just don't know that I could do. I'm talking with Aaron Shervich today about debate and persuasion in our fractured world. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll be back with the rest of the conversation after this break. My parents were what you'd call wandering souls. I must have lived in a half dozen places before I was two years old. But eventually, my family wandered into this little sawmill town called Walden in northern Colorado. My mom says the town was really kind of hip back then. She'd put me and my brother in a little red wagon and pull us downtown. When we moved there in 74... There was a lot going on. There was um, an art supply store. There was a health food store. There was a hardware store right on Main Street. I remember the uh, ice cream parlor and toy store. Yeah. And, And your dad immediately started playing music with the rhythm wrestlers. The town welcomed us in. And for the first time, we settled down. But by the time I went to college, 
Walden was changing, fast. The town mayor, Jim Dustin, describes what happened. It used to have a sawmill. It used to have a um, coal mine. It used to have a railroad. All those things went away. And even a recent fracking boom didn't revive things. And now my hometown has shrunk to nearly half as many people as when I was a kid. I wondered just how small can a town shrink before it just disappears. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Today I'm talking with Aaron Shervich about the possibility of persuasion in today's world full of echo chambers and polarization. And here's the rest of our conversation. How much tolerance do you think you have to do arguments in general, like to just get in an argument with somebody now? Um, it depends on how how I perceive their engagement with the argument. You know, if I think it's in good faith, I'll spend the whole day. I don't care. I can spend I can spend all night going back and forth with somebody just explaining something. The moment that it you know it turns into like insults, I'm out. You're not you're not engaging in a discussion. You're not engaging in an academic argument. You're just being a, <laughs> and I'm not here for it. So it really just kind of depends on the approach to that that argument as to whether I'm you know there or not. But more often than not, if it's if it's in good faith and it's just a matter of like, hey, I want to learn, so let's talk about these ideas. We might disagree, but let's talk about them. I'm in. That's fine. That sounds good. Good faith is something where it's another one of those sort of ideals that everybody imagines that they want both to be arguing in good faith and to listen to people who are arguing in good faith. And I'm, in, I'm increasingly uh, finding that. I'm not sure people actually, for the most part, want that. I think yeah, they, I get that. They pick their person who maybe isn't in good faith and like, yeah, this is more satisfying, though, than <laughs> something that's completely intellectually yeah, honest. Yeah, I, I want somebody to bludgeon, yeah. right? Like, yeah, I get that. I get that. I mean, every now and then that feels good. You know, it's it's the uh, the reality TV version of trying to make an argument. It's that thing that's just like your baser animal reptile brain kind of thing, just being like, yeah, scratch that itch, do it. Right. But I don't know. Like it's it's not something that satisfies in the long run for me. It's something that like, yeah, I might, I might dig that in the short term. But long term, I, I want to do something. I want to feel like I'm getting somewhere. I get a little dismayed, at least in the terms of like, if we want good debates that are in good faith, Ben Shapiro is like repeatedly got mm-hmm. the top 10 articles on Facebook that are getting shared, for example. Yeah. He's got sort of the whole outrage factory. And a good example uh, that is maybe less politically, uh, I don't know, less likely to anger a lot of people that I came across <laughs> was I think it was I didn't really know him that much until, I don't know, four or five years ago. And so somebody had told me, oh, yeah, he's great, you know, whatever. And so I was looking into him, and I found one. So I'm a movie guy, so an easy one for me to look at was movies because I know, you know, a decent amount about that. So that movie, First Man, the Neil Armstrong movie starring Ryan Gosling, was coming out. But there was some report that there was no shot of them putting the American flag onto the surface of the moon in this movie, right? 
And so the movie hasn't come out. I don't think there. I think the trailer had come out, and there's like American flags all over the trailer itself. But there's no specific shot of them putting the flag. That's just because commies made it. Well, that's that. that so the <laughs> argument Ben Shapiro makes is this movie is anti-nationalism. It's this trend in Hollywood to try to erase America's achievement and its you know its participation oh. in the moon you know the moon landing. Blah blah blah. It's just like you know you can interpret that a few ways. You know, one of those is that. Well, okay, first of all, he hasn't seen the movie, so maybe you shouldn't be arguing about a movie you haven't seen. Second of all, there's 100 American flags in this trailer. And just So, like, on that alone, it's sort of like we don't have to pick a politically charged topic so much, but we could kind of break apart. I think I see he's trying to make an argument more so than he's trying to actually talk about a thing that exists. Absolutely. But that's the most popular stuff that's out there. Sure. Why why don't people want good arguments? Why don't people like them better? Uh, People don't like to be challenged. It takes a particular kind of person to want to actually be challenged and called out. You know, if if I messed up, I want to know about it. If I messed up in public, I want you to call me out in public. If I if I did something offensive in front of 30 people, if we correct that in front of those 30 people, we can show them that that wasn't right and I can fix it or at least try to fix it. You know, it's not necessarily that every time you do something stupid, you can immediately fix the damage, right? But I can at least try to let them know that I recognize that I screwed up and that it won't happen again. Uh, but a lot of people don't like that. Too many people want yes men. Too many people want people who just agree exactly with what they think. Or they just, you know, they want to be, they want permission to be mad about the right thing or at the right people. And I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which was in the sort of Rush Limbaugh culture, it's easy to feed into that anger that's just sort of inherent Mm -hmm. in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is is empathy like it was for you when you meet certain people and just sort of broaden your own horizons? Is that the antidote to this kind of like weird satisfaction anger? I think empathy is important. I think exposure is important, you know. When I was growing up, I went from the richest elementary school in my town to the poorest elementary school in my town, right? Like most of my classmates at the second elementary school were living in trailer parks and they were, you know, broken homes and all that kind of stuff. I just, I I learned a lot more there than the other place. You know, I went from being the middle class kid who was the poor kid to being the middle class kid who was like the rich kid. And it was a, it was an experience where I just got to see that lives are different that people have different challenges, different experiences, and everything else. And I think that that also laid some groundwork that made me more open later on to, you know, actually seeing that once I developed, you know, a frontal cortex that could allow me to evaluate that kind of information. And exposure is important. As long as you're empathetic, exposure matters. You know, meeting people who don't have the life you have. I was telling my kids at school, uh, I think last week, that, they have experiences that I don't have, which means they have expertise that I don't have. And even though I'm the teacher, even though I'm standing up in front of a classroom, even though I'm going to tell them the lesson and I'm going to make the plans that we're going to learn from each other. And, you know, I, I looked at a few of them that they don't look like the, you know, 35-year-old white guy that I am. And I was like, you and me, we don't have the same life, right? No. Okay. Then let's talk about your experience. If you live down in North O, I don't live in North O. I don't know what that's like on a first-hand level. I can read about it. I can know kind of vaguely what's going on. But, you know, if you grow up there, you live there every day, you've got the experience, you've got the expertise that I don't have, and I want to know about it. And I don't think enough people want to know. I think they just want to be told that they were right the whole time. And that's the fundamental problem. I think if if somebody engages in debate as an activity, they want to know. And that's the thing that I respect. You know, a lot of them anyway. It's not... It's not 100%, but I would say it's majority. I, I find it disturbing how we have to learn empathy and how it's this difficult journey that leads to epiphanies instead of it just being something that feels more natural. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so difficult. Like, it's that reptile brain thing where it's hard to 
it's hard to think about how other people have lives that aren't the same as yours. Like sometimes I still have that moment where like I'll see somebody at a store who I've never seen before and I was like, oh my God, they have an entire life that I know nothing about. They have parents that maybe died or maybe you're still alive and they love them and I don't know who those people are. But they have really passionate feelings about those people. And I'll just have this entire kind of dialogue where I'm like inventing their life story thinking that's so wild that there are so many people I've literally never even fathomed existing. And I'm not sure that somebody who, you know, would engage the way that like a Ben Shapiro would engage would ever have that thought. I'm not saying that I'm doing anything perfectly because it's still weird that at 35 I'm still realizing that there are people I've never met. (laughs) But it's like it's that moment of, huh, and I'm willing to challenge myself. I'm willing to engage in that level where it's like, oh, the thing that I knew today at the start of the day isn't perfect knowledge. It's every bit of knowledge that we have is imperfect knowledge. Right. And debate folks realize that for the most part. And that I think that's a vitally important element in actually communicating. Mm-hmm. And that's partially why it's difficult for people to communicate in general today. For sure. And I, yeah, well, I kind of just keep going back to this. Like, I don't know what to do with us. I feel like it's all maybe over. Like, like I, you know, we got this whole show is founded on this idea that conversations matter. And sometimes I wonder if it actually does. Like, yeah. like I don't specifically do this show where you ever have to agree with anybody who's on or agree with sure. anything I say. That's that's, that's one thing I respect about your show. Oh, thank you. But sometimes then also it's just sort of like, okay, like I don't want to change anybody's mind. But it would be nice if at some point somebody maybe thinks about one thing a little bit differently because of something they heard on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I was joking around in class today, and I told my kids, don't get hit by a train. Like, that was life advice. Like, it was some big revelation. And I was like, look, if only one of you didn't know that you shouldn't get hit by a train, and I saved one life today, that's enough for me. And they're just like, will you shut up? And I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> but, like, I think that, that is a, that's a good moment of, of, like, you know, it's a silly one, but I think it's the same kind of thing. It's like, if the work that I'm doing can help one person escape whatever existence that they had that sucked before like mine did before I got into debate then cool you know I can help somebody out and then I can you know pay it forward because that definitely saved me I graduated with a 2.3 in high school literally 25% of my high school classes were my debate class where it was like an an easy A for me Mm -hmm. and I still graduated with a 2.3 so I don't know that I would have gotten out had it not been for the activity where you know I, I knew if I didn't perform at at least a bare minimum standard of success in high school, that I wouldn't be eligible to compete. So I needed to compete. I had that connection to my team more than I had that connection to my high school. And, you know, it's hard for me to see schools that don't have those programs that can connect to that kid who I was. The student that I was in high school who was a pain that teachers would warn each other about. I look at kids like me now, and I'm excited to see them. Now, granted, I'm also sweating a little bit because, oh, God, there's so much work. But I'm excited to be the person that they can, you know, connect to and that they can draw that that bridge to that will get them to continue to come and that will get them to, you know, care about their success, even if it's only for the activity. Because the kids don't realize that if you trick them into succeeding, that they're still succeeding. And it doesn't matter if they do it because they want to succeed or they want to do something else. If they're learning because of other reasons, they're still learning. I love that about it. You know? yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Aaron Shervich about the possibility of persuasion in today's polarized world. I think it's another thing that's kind of an interesting element of your story, which is your teachers acknowledged that you were smart. 
you care about knowledge in a profound way, but grading then becomes separate from a kid who really wants to learn about something or a kid who cares about the concept of learning in general. I don't know. That, that seems like it maybe speaks to a, a general problem in the education, the structure of education. Yeah, I mean, education is driven by grading. I always kind of hated it. Like, my kids were like, we didn't update the gradebook. I'm like, you knew a thing, right? We're good. You have a grade. We'll be fine. I, I have to be better about that professionally. But I want to evaluate kids where they are. I want to evaluate kids where their effort is. And the debate world, the thing I love about it is we're not really talking about necessarily an explicit grade. But when you cast a ballot in a round, it's more or less a grade. You did this. You did this well. You did this in a way that you could probably improve it. Mm-hmm. And then they can take that feedback and they can apply it in the next hour because they have another debate coming right back up. So the debate world is the most concrete and explicit feedback, you know, application, you know, learning kind of environment that I've, I've ever seen, much more so than classrooms, even, even at their best. I think a debate and speech environment where you're getting explicit feedback right away, it's beyond what a classroom can do just because the kids are so invested. Yeah, I mean, for you, it's, it's kind of funny because it's like the story of this, the stereotypical story we hear about athletes, right? Which mm-hmm. is they have to get the grades up to be able to play Absolutely. the sport. And you don't think of that as a similar sort of discipline, but I guess it is, right? It, it is to a large extent. It's just that if I'm somebody who doesn't know a whole lot and I want to be the quarterback, I can know quarterback stuff and I'll be fine, you know. But that quarterback stuff's not going to help me in English. That quarterback stuff's not going to help me in my Spanish class. In a debate environment, if I don't know my debate stuff, I'm up a creek in debate, but I'm probably also up a creek in my classes. You know, if I don't know what's going on with, like, a concept of the social contract, I might not understand exactly what's going on in my English uh, story that I'm, I'm trying to, to, to process. Although English is the wrong subject there because pretty easily you can be like, well, here's how Hobbes applies that's, here. That's fair. I mean, blah, you, blah, can, blah. You, can, you, can, you can really <laughs> jump through some hoops in an English class. Yeah. But, like, if I don't have the baseline knowledge to be able to be competitive in a debate world, I probably don't have the baseline knowledge to even BS my way through in that English class. So, you know, I, I think debate being an expressly academic activity and speech being an expressly academic activity – it lends itself to even when your your kind of peripheral skills are good, then those things are going to help you in a classroom environment. You know, if you are an extemp kid on a speech team, you have 30 minutes from the time you get your speech topic to the time you give your five to seven minute speech. Try to give a kid who is good at extemp a class assignment where they have to give a speech and they have two days to prepare it. That kid's going to blow your freaking world. Like it's just going to, yeah, they're going to show up and they're going to drop the best thing you've ever seen because they've just got like 2 million percent of their prep time. Well, or that kid's not going to prep until 30 minutes before that's they also go up possible. that's what they're good at. That's also possible. Speaking from experience, <laughs> that's a thing that happens too. <laughs> but it, it will probably still be the best one in class. So, you know, whatever. You know, if you prep more in advance or you decide to procrastinate like I always did. Yeah. You were still – fine. You know, everything still worked out. You were still able to demonstrate the knowledge and do what you needed to do to make it, you know, really land. Right. Well, okay, so you're you're out of the debate culture more so at least than you have been for a while, like for a decade or so. Yeah. How's that going? Uh, well, I'm I'm getting sucked back in. Okay. So, I'll be coaching a team again this this fall. Okay. Um, uh, when I when I accepted the position I've got right now, I I was just like, nope, I'm done, I'm out, bye, goodbye, community, I'm out, bye, see ya. And then it was like, well, I don't know, 
do I do I really have the ability to leave? And do you I? don't you don't have the ability I to get out? I think I do. <laughs> I don't think I do. If I'm breathing, I'm probably coaching somewhere. Well, if, okay, so if you were able to not be involved in debate, what are you going to spend your time doing on weekends? <laughs> probably and coaching speech. Honestly. <laughs> That was what my plan was. I was like, nope, I'll just go coach speech. I'll just go be an assistant speech coach. It'll be different, but it'll be similar, and it'll still allow me to use my skills. And then I was like, oh, man, this place hasn't had a debate team in 15 years. It'd be really cool to build it again. Yeah. But that's how I play video games, too, honestly. I play this one game, <laughs> and I won't go too far off on this tangent, but the video game is called Out of, uh, Out of the Park Baseball. And you get to be the GM for your baseball team, and I'm a wheeling dealing guy, right? So I don't care who who you are, how good you are, I'll trade you for 37 players that are better than you, and I'll build that team within one or two years to be a World Series team, like two or three times in a row, and then those contracts start coming due, and I don't want to deal with that, so I bolt and I go coach another team, and I kind of feel a little bit like I did that in real life this time, you know. <laughs> Six state titles in a row, and then I'm like, okay, bye. I'm doing this over again. But I, you know, when I left, it wasn't to go somewhere else because the pastures are greener. No, I left probably the greenest pasture I could have found. Right. Great place. Love the team. Love the kids. Love the support from admin. All of that. But now I'm just looking at it going, well, I don't know if I can leave. <laughs> so I'll just start over. And it's a different challenge, so, you know, that'll scratch the itch for a while, and then we'll go from there. We'll see what happens, you know? So I don't like to ever go into a place with an exit strategy. I'm not that's, – that's not me. Treat relationships and jobs kind of the same way. I'm like, well, if I'm going to date somebody, <laughs> I'm not thinking about how it's going to end while we're doing that. That's how you kill a relationship before it even starts. So, you know, and, and also I don't want my wife to think that I have an exit strategy. <laughs> It's, Just, an, it's kind of an inherent optimism. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one thing that I can be optimistic you'll about. You'll figure something out. I mean, yeah, well, I mean beyond just your, your marriage, but yeah. like in general, like, you know, you go in, like, I think I'll be able to make this work. Yeah. It's kind of the underlying idea there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I fly by the seat of my pants. It's definitely a life skill. It's, it's the BS kind of coming into being a, a life skill more right. broadly. Yeah. So, you know, I'll make it work. Best of best of a weird scenario, and I'll just do what I can do. I like that we've sort of come full circle. So BS is a life philosophy, but it's a yeah. good thing. It's a happy yeah. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's optimistic. Everybody else BSing, that's pessimism. But me, <laughs> thumbs up. Game on. Let's do this. Uh, that's a great place for us to end. So <laughs> thanks for being on the show today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>